0: Good morning. My name is Nick Swan. I'm the associate pastor here at Grace. Welcome to all of you who are joining us online. Uh, we We are concluding our series on the book of Joshua this morning by looking at Joshua chapter 24. And the title of this morning's message is Choose This Day. Before we begin, let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to the abundant grace that you have given to us through Jesus Christ, that you would help us to see your faithfulness to your people, which is thousands of years in the making, continues to this day, and will continue through eternity. And I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would open our eyes to see glorious things in your law this morning. I ask in Christ's name. Amen. As you notice from Molly's reading, I have a larger than normal chunk of text to cover this morning. And so I'm going to dispense with my usual opening illustration, which leads to my main point, which leads to et cetera, et cetera. So we're just going to hop right in on this text. There's lots of really good stuff. And so I want us to dive uh, right in. As is the case at the end of... Major books in the Bible there are often turning points and at that moment what God does is he will often review where have we been and so that you can then see where are we about ready to go and what we're going to see is as as God reviews where we've been he's going to reveal that the salvation that he has given to Israel is all of God's grace all of his doing from first to last And in response to that grace, he's going to call forth a response from us, that we are to choose this day whom we are to serve. And that as we do so, we can have hope, hope even in the face of death. So that's where Joshua, the book of Joshua, is going to take us this morning. I'm going to start with our first point, which is this, God's grace from first to last. So by chapter 24, the Israelites have taken possession of the land and Joshua has made his final speech in chapter 23 and he now calls on them to renew their commitment to God by making promises to God that they will obey him. So all the people gather along with all the leaders of the people, the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers, and they present themselves before God and then God through Joshua speaks to them. Verse 2, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel... And then Joshua launches into a retelling of God's grace to Israel, beginning with Abraham. And he, he does so, and as he does so, it becomes apparent that what has happened to Israel, all the things that God has done have been by his grace from first to last. He begins with what might be a surprising, surprising revelation to some of us regarding Abraham. So often we think of Abraham as the hero of the faith. But in verse 2 it says this, Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. So Abraham, this great hero of the faith, the the leader, the founder of the nation of Israel, is actually an idolater. And he's called out of a family of idolaters. So when God calls Abraham in Genesis 12 to leave his people and he makes all these promises of making him into a great nation and blessing him, God wasn't calling and making promises to a righteous man. What God was doing was graciously calling and making promises to an idolater who did not deserve to receive the grace that God was offering. We then learn that this grace unfolds in ways beyond our control and often outside of our preferred design And timeline, Abraham obeyed and yet he had to wait 25 years for his barren wife, Sarah, to finally conceive and give birth to a son, Isaac. Isaac, again, had to wait for his barren wife to to conceive and then ultimately give birth to twin boys, Jacob and Esau. And so after 50 years, after God's made this initial promise, this great nation is nothing more than a few people. God's grace was always present, yet from the start it is clear that God works according to his timeline, not ours. Not only is the grace of God sometimes slow in developing, it can at times seem unfair. Verse 4, we read that Esau, remember Esau, he rejected God and he rejected his birthright, and yet Esau immediately receives his inheritance. But not so with Jacob and the people of God. God had another plan for them, so he sends them down to the land of Egypt. And 400 years later, he follows through on his promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And while there in Egypt, God's people, they were the recipients of God's grace, yes, but they suffered horribly at the hands of the Egyptians. And so they cry out, God in his mercy sends Moses and Aaron to lead the people. And then ultimately by the power of God's hand, he sends plagues to free, to free them from their slavery and delivers them through the Red Sea. 400 years later... And then within weeks of their deliverance, they're on the edge of the promised land. You think, finally, they're getting ready to receive what God has promised them. And yet in that moment, they're disobedient. And so God sends them out into the wilderness to wander for another 40 years, graciously sustaining them the entire time. So then the time comes, finally, in the book of Joshua. They're going to enter the land And God goes before them yet again to defeat their enemies east of the Jordan, then delivers them through the Jordan, and then defeats their enemies west of the Jordan. The entire time, God graciously sustaining them over 500 years as his promises develop into reality. Every step of the way, from God calling Abraham to giving them the land, the people of God were wholly dependent upon the grace of God to deliver them and to sustain them. And to drive this point home, God uses the first person singular 18 times in these first 13 verses. Did you notice this? God says, I took your father Abraham from beyond the river. I gave him Isaac. To Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau. I sent Moses and Aaron. I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward, I brought you out. I, 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 I. 18 times. And at the end of this... Eighteen times of the first person, it becomes abundantly clear. There is one person responsible for the salvation of Israel, and it is God himself. All that they have, God has given them. It is all of God's grace from first to last. Now, I've been using this word grace quite a bit. So let me clarify what I mean or define what I mean by grace. I define grace, along with lots of other people, as the unmerited favor of God. This favor of God is one we cannot earn and one that actually flies in the face of what we deserve. Grace is God granting favor to those whose actions deserve the exact opposite. We see a snapshot of this concept of grace crystallized in verses 12 and 13. Look with me there. And I sent the hornet before you, this is describing how he went before them to defeat their enemies, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant." In other words, Israel, you are the recipients of an abundant inheritance that you neither deserved nor could you ever have earned for yourself. This is what I mean by grace. Friends, our salvation is no less by the grace of God. When God called us, he wasn't calling righteous people to himself. He was calling sinners and rebels who were enemies of God. And the salvation he offers us is all of grace. It's not our death that paid our debt. It's Christ's death that paid for our sins. It's Christ's righteousness that is given to us to give us right standing for God. It's Christ who fought for us, defeating sin and death and the devil. It's Christ who rose from the dead, giving us eternal life. It's Christ who pours out his spirit upon us to save us and sanctify us and one day glorify us. When we stand before God, not one of us, not a man, woman, or child will have any claim to the salvation that is ours. It will be of God's grace given to us through Jesus Christ from first to last. But this life of salvation by grace, it doesn't come with the promise of a life free from suffering. In fact, it's often worked out in our lives, in and through our suffering. In God's working out of our salvation in our lives, it's often slow. You ever think about your progress as a Christian? It seems like two steps forward, one step back, sometimes three steps back, maybe one step. It's slow. It's not according to our timeline. Have you also noticed how, from our vantage point, it can often seem unfair? We're trying to hold fast to Christ in the midst of suffering while the wicked around us seem to prosper. Yet we learn from this passage that God's gracious salvation, it is absolutely secure. And it's always according to God's sovereign plan, according to his timeline. But we can trust that he will always do what he says he will do for our ultimate good. God's story of salvation, it is accomplished by him. And it is graciously worked out in our lives according to his sovereign and good plan. So, how are we to respond to this gracious salvation in our lives? God moves towards us in grace. How do we respond? Point number two, our response to God's grace. Our response to God's grace. God gives two different responses for two groups of people in our passage. For those who have already chosen to serve God, verse 14 Joshua calls them to fear the Lord, serve him with sincerity and in faithfulness as demonstrated by ceasing from your worshiping of other gods. And then the second group in verse 15, for those who have not yet chosen to serve the Lord, Joshua calls them to choose whom they will serve, the one true God or the gods of this world. So let's take each in their turn here. First, for those who have already chosen to serve God, Joshua commands them, read with me verse 14, fear the Lord. And serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river, speaking of Abraham, and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. So this word fear, fear God. This word can often tangle us up a bit because we we don't like to associate fear with God. Fear is anxiety, it's to be terrified. And yet we have this picture of God as our father, we're supposed to love him and draw near to him. So how do we draw near to someone That terrifies us. Well, the answer, I believe, is that it's the use of the word fear that's slightly different than our use. It's an older use of this word, which means to to reverence God, to hold him in honor, to worship him, to be in awe of him. To use a human equivalent to illustrate this, picture what it would feel like to play 18 holes with Tiger Woods. Picture what it would feel like to play a pickup game of basketball with Michael Jordan in your driveway. Picture what it would be like to play pass with Tom Brady, just tossing the football back and forth. Now, you wouldn't be terrified of these people. They're not going to hurt you, but would you be in awe of them? Would you be kind of amazed? I can't believe I'm, I'm, I'm playing 18 with Tiger right now. What am I going to say? What am I going to do? What if I duff it off the first tee? We're in awe of these people, and so it changes how we act around them. In a very similar way, we are to be in awe of God, to fear him, to reverence him, to hold him in great esteem. That's what is meant here by fear. And this fear of God is meant to positively lead us to serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Now, we often diminish serving, I believe, in our minds to yielding to a convenient portion of our lives to to God. We're going to yield a convenient portion of our lives in service to God. However, this word serve has the connotations of service, of of slavery, of being a servant, to be in complete submission to God who is our Lord, King, and Master. And sincerely points to the submission of our whole being and faithfully points to continually doing so without ceasing. In response to God who has graciously saved us and poured out his grace upon us, we are to fear him and to serve him continually with our whole being. This requires us negatively to put away worship of other things. We are to put away the gods of our fathers whom we served beyond the river or in Egypt. In other words, we are to put away the gods we used to serve in our former lives. If we are to fear God, we must honor him above all things. If we are to serve God, we must do so with a singleness of mind, putting away all of our former idols of money, comfort, ease, respect, and pleasure in order to serve God continually and with our whole being. This is the, God, the call that God places upon us in response to the abundant blessing we have received through Christ. Now, the second group... ...is addressed in verse 15. In this verse, Joshua speaks to those for whom it is evil in their eyes to serve the Lord. These are folks who have not turned to God to receive the gracious salvation that he offers. And to them, Joshua says, choose this day whom you will serve. And then he places before them only two choices. You either choose to serve the Lord or you choose to serve the idols of this world... Now, you may be here this morning and you're exploring the faith. You might be here and you're somewhat skeptical. You might be here, your parents might have dragged you, and you're in opposition to this entire thing. And here's what you might be saying to this choice that I gave. Nick, that's a false choice. I don't have to choose between serving God and serving idols. I have freedom to choose to serve whatever I want. And if I don't want to serve anyone, I don't have to serve anyone at all. And I hear what you're saying. You might think that you have that freedom, but I believe that the Bible actually teaches something quite different. The Bible actually teaches that none of us are free in the totally autonomous sense that the world says that we are. In fact, we are all slaves, it says. We are either slaves to sin or we are slaves to righteousness. There is no middle category of freedom. The idea of complete human autonomy, freedom to do as we choose, in other words, it's an illusion. We are either serving God or we are serving the idols of this world. Now, if you don't believe me, you may not, have a look at the world in which we live. Since the Enlightenment 400 years ago, all of Western civilization has been hard at work throwing off all of the slavery of a Christian worldview All in the name of self-determination, human autonomy, the freedom to be and do whatever we desire. All with the promise that if we do so, we will finally be happy. In the name of freedom, our society has embraced iconoclasm, slowly demolishing any social norms rooted in God's word. All with the promise that if we can finally do so, we will free ourselves to be who we were truly meant to be, to be our authentic selves. And yet all we have succeeded in doing is leading ourselves into greater and greater slavery to the idols of this world. What was promised as a pathway to freedom has led to a downward spiral of misery. For all of our supposed freedom, we are more anxious, angry, divided, and depressed than we have ever been. We grind away at work, we take medications to make ourselves feel better, we drink drinks, we eat good food, we spend money, we indulge ourselves in pleasures, we endlessly stream shows, we look at our phones wondering who texted us or who liked our posts. All we think if we just keep spinning after this, around the next bend in this pursuit of our own fulfillment, that we'll finally have freedom and finally have the hope that this world promises is always just around the bend. But friends, it's a mirage doesn't exist. There's no freedom to be found in this place. True freedom isn't found in doing what we want. That only leads us to ever deepening slavery to the idols of this world. True freedom is found in submission to God. It's when we serve him that we will find true freedom because it's in right relationship with him that we are able to live the life that God has designed for us. And so God says to us, choose this day whom you will serve. The Lord leading to true freedom and life, or the idols of this world leading to slavery and ultimately death. So how do the Israelites respond? Joshua's given this major charge, recounts all this history, says this is what you need to do. And their response is, we got this, no problem. Verse 16, then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Has that been their track record, by the way? No. So their response in verses 16 to 18, if you read it, it is a textbook answer. It is absolutely true and absolutely accurate. Yet cynically, it can feel a bit like the Sunday school answer to Joshua's challenge. And to this, Joshua responds in verses 19 and 20, actually, you don't got this. You are not able to serve the Lord. Now obviously Joshua believes that they can respond to God's grace and obedience. Joshua himself in verse 15 says, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua is no less in need of God's grace than we are. Rather, what I think Joshua is getting at is he's pushing them to really consider what it is they are committing themselves to do. In our day and age, this would be the complete antithesis of what we would think is an excellent evangelistic strategy. Never. How many in your life, when someone says, I really want to follow Jesus, you go to them, no, you can't do that. You're incapable of doing so. No, we are so excited that they would say yes, that at times I believe we begin to overlook the cost of what it means to actually commit ourselves to following him. However, both Joshua and Jesus have the same approach when calling disciples to count the cost of discipleship. Joshua makes clear that God is in earnest When he says you must turn from your idols, that you must obey and follow me, that God means it. Following God means living for him exclusively at cost to ourselves. Jesus in Luke 14 has a similar response. When great crowds are following him, listen to what he says to this great crowd. We would be all excited. Look how many people showed up to church. Listen to what Jesus says. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In other words, Jesus doesn't want our enthusiasm. He wants our commitment. And he challenges us to count the cost carefully of following him. And here in Joshua 24, the people are renewing their covenant with God. They're promising in response to God's saving grace to follow him with their whole hearts. And Joshua is saying, count the cost of doing so. In verse 21, the people again, they respond in the affirmative. And then in verses 22 to 28, Joshua reiterates this commitment that they are making. And he sets up this stone of witness saying, there are stones that will witness what you have committed to do here. And then Joshua dismisses the people, and they return to their inheritance. So friends, God calls each of us to respond to his call of discipleship. He says to us, choose this day whom you will serve. God has graciously redeemed us. What that means is he's purchased us out of our slavery. We are not all, no longer our own. We have been bought with a price. And in response to that redeeming love, he calls us, to obey him, to be all in with him. If you're here this morning and you've responded to God's grace by placing your faith in him, ask yourself, are you living for Christ with your whole heart? Are there any ways in which you're returning to the former idols of your life and your heart is divided between the God who has saved you and the idols you used to worship? If you haven't yet chosen to Follow Christ, I urge you to respond to God's call. Choose this day whom you will serve. See the offer of this world as the mirage which it is. It will never satisfy you. The only one who will ever truly satisfy you is God, who has given Christ for you to save you, to give you eternal life. Know that is not a promise, that you will be free from suffering in this life. But with that suffering comes the promise that Christ will always be with you, that he will deliver you through that suffering, and one day we will spend eternity with him. Choose this day whom you will serve. Our last point this morning, very briefly, is this. Hope that transcends death. Hope that transcends death. So we just had this dramatic scene of commitment and covenant renewal. The book of Joshua then ends with what might seem a pretty melancholy note with the death of these key figures, Joshua and Eleazar the priest, and then along with this odd passage about Joseph's bones. But what at first appears like a downer is actually a passage of great hope. What we have in these closing verses are three key figures a place, and then a figure that that place points to. And all of these point to the overwhelming faithfulness of God to fulfill his promises. So first, the two figures. We have Joshua and Eleazar the priest. Now, if you read the entirety of the book of Joshua, Joshua and Eleazar the priest, are key figures. And throughout this book, against great odds, they believed that God would do what he said he would do. And then you see at the end of this book that at the end of their long lives, they are now dying in peace and they will be buried in the inheritance which God had promised them. They believed God's promises, and now at the end of their lives, they're seeing these promises come to fruition. We then have this passage regarding Joseph's bones, which are to be buried at Shechem. To understand this, you have to remember the instructions which Joseph had given 400 years before to his family in Genesis 50. And he explains, this is explained in in, in Genesis 50. Let me read it for you. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Joseph's instructions revealed his unshakable faith In the promises of God, in 400 years after his death, his people indeed brought his bones up from Egypt and laid them to rest in the land that Joseph, by faith, knew that God would give them. And the location of Shechem, where Joseph's bones are laid, also have special meaning to the people of God. Shechem is where this entire ceremony had been taking place in Joshua 24. And Shechem is also the place where God had made a very specific promise to Abraham 500 years before in Genesis 12. These are the words that God spoke to Abraham at Shechem. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Friends, we serve a God who keeps His promises, hundreds of years after he spoke promises to Abraham and to Joseph, God fulfilled what he said he would do for them. Are you here this morning and you are doubting the faithfulness of God? Friends, do not doubt the faithfulness of our God. Yes, there are times where his promises may seem slow in coming, but remember what Peter says in 1 Peter. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Our God's promises may seem slow in coming, but they will come. He is faithful. I also believe it's not a coincidence that these promises are fulfilled in the midst of death. Even in the face of death, we need not fear. The face of, faith of Joseph is open to us as well. Yes, we will each face death. But even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we're promised that our God is with us and that he will always be with us. Therefore, we need not fear. Or as it says in 1 Thessalonians, for one day the Lord himself will descend From heaven, with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Friends, these are the promises that have been given to us. They may seem slow in coming, but I assure you, they will come to pass because our God is faithful. Our salvation, it is all of God. It is all of his grace from first to last. And it calls forth a response. Choose this day whom you will serve with your whole being. And in so doing, if you choose to serve the living God, you will have a hope that cannot be extinguished even by death. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word which raises our gaze beyond the circumstances of our very small and very limited lives, to remind us that you are the God of human history, and throughout that history you have been redeeming a people for yourself, and that that salvation, that redemption is all of your grace. Father, may we have confidence this morning in your word, in your promises, and may we do so even in the face of death, because hope and life are yours. In Christ's name, amen.